There's not a person on the earth who does not need to hear the message of Isaiah 61. Not a person. There are and many people, I think, today who would glance down at uh, the first three verses of this uh, chapter and say, I think, this, this message is for someone else. It is for the poor. It is for the broken-hearted. It is for captives. It is for prisoners. It's for those who mourn, who grieve and despair. And uh, to be honest, when they read that list, many people would conclude that this chapter is for a few who, when, when they experience particular problems, or worse still, I think, today, some people um, say that uh, chapters like this are, frankly, for losers who can't cope. There's a great deal of bravado in our world today it seems to me, that runs away from the language of poverty and brokenness with all the uh, energy of an Olympic uh, sprinter. And this morning I want us, as we start, in order to understand this passage, to see that Isaiah chapter 61 is a message for everyone. It is a message that actually um, um, uh, touches on the dark side, not, not just of a few people's reality, but everyone's reality. The young person who is uh, uh, trained to believe that uh, the world is theirs, that they can do anything, finds themselves strangely unable to achieve the things that is most important to them. They lack inner peace, they long for intimacy, they, they long for meaning in their driven life. They resort to alcohol or promiscuity or obsessive work or escapism in computer games and films or hollow magazine as an anaesthetic against that dark reality that starts to, doom on, uh, to loom on them. This world is not quite the eternal sunny place we might like to think it is on a May morning like this. The middle-aged man or woman who once had so many dreams discovers life is not quite so glorious as he or she had hoped. Relationships, frankly, are hard work. Work can be a drudgery. Promotions are slow. Money is short. Life is busy and tough with unexpected tragedies. And the person in their older life begins to experience their body failing. They feel limited, sometimes anxious, frustrated, imprisoned. It's not, it's, it's, it's not that every aspect of life is, is, is dark. The, 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 uh, neither the Bible nor experience would, uh, would, would support that. We are glorious beings made in a world that is full of beauty and there is much happiness that we can enjoy, that all people can enjoy. But it is to live in a fantasy world to think that any of us do not have to uh, uh, acknowledge the dark side of reality. The, uh, 
melancholy clown in Shakespeare's As You Like It, Jaquies, cynically described the seven ages of man. I don't know whether you know his speech. Begins with the infant mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, as he puts it. The schoolboy um, um, creeping like snail, unwillingly to school. Some things never change. Um, the lover, the young lover, sighing like furnace, the adult seeking the bubble, reputation. Till finally the old man, he says, his big manly voice turning towards a childish treble, descending into second childhood, without teeth or eyes or taste or anything. Jaquees is funny, but he's right. Nothing changes. Every single human being who ever lived has to come to terms with that dark side of reality. And every single human being who ever lived senses and longs for something better. It is programmed into our DNA. It is, it is etched on our soul. It is rooted in the depths of our spirits. We are creatures, frankly, stumbling around in the mud, gazing at the stars and saying to ourselves, if only. To deny that is to deny reality. And that is why Isaiah 61 is for everyone. When Isaiah speaks of the poor, when he speaks of the brokenhearted, he's not talking about a group of losers who cannot cope with life. He is talking to people who have looked at life with honest, open eyes and said, there must be something more. This is a broken world. This is a cramped world. I feel imprisoned. This is an injured world. I need healing. The New Testament takes the categories that Isaiah uses, which are very concrete categories. It speaks of prisoners, for instance. And... Uh, takes us to the very deepest root of the imprisonment that we endure. An imprisonment in lives that we cannot entirely control, where we find ourselves sucked into behaviour that entraps us. Finally, an imprisonment in a body which will die. Isaiah 61 is for everyone. So we need to understand it. We need to ask some key questions of this chapter in order to grasp what Isaiah is looking for. Who is this Spirit-empowered person. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, says uh, 
uh, this person in Isaiah 61. Who is? Who is he? Gospel writer Luke tells us. He describes the beginning of uh, uh, Jesus' ministry. And right at the beginning, in Luke chapter 4, and turn to it if you want or just listen to it, we hear a story about Jesus. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him and unrolling it he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began by saying, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah speaks with the words of Jesus even here in Isaiah 61. Jesus came as the great deliverer whom Isaiah foresaw. That's what we need to unpack this morning. Isaiah's description of the life and ministry of Jesus. The first question to ask then, how is Jesus equipped? He is equipped, empowered by the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord, isn't he? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. So appropriate at Pentecost. Pentecost, you see, is the, is the great moment when the Spirit of God came on God's people. But before that happened, the Spirit of God empowered Jesus himself, says the Bible. It's very important as well that Isaiah describes God as the Sovereign Lord. This is the only God. This is the all-powerful God. This is the unstoppable God who has empowered Jesus by his Spirit. This makes Jesus the Anointed One. The Lord has anointed me, he says. That's a title that um, uh, tended to be given to the king of Israel in Jesus' day. The one particularly empowered to rule. Now the Spirit of God has come on Jesus. The Sovereign Lord empowers Jesus for his ministry. So nothing can stop him. Actually, the uh, fact that he speaks of the, the Spirit of God being on Jesus draws us to something, to the developing story of Isaiah that we have traced every time we've looked at these last chapters, um, uh, at these last chapters of Isaiah. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah focus around um, a picture of a great king, actually a God king, who will one day come. And Isaiah 11, for instance, describes this God-King. 
verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. The great God King will be anointed by the spirit of God. Then uh, um, uh, Isaiah 40 to 55 starts to describe another figure who it slowly becomes clear is actually the same figure. This time a godlike servant. A servant who will uh, not so much rule as the king at the, in the first 39 chapters did, but who will actually give himself, finally die for the sins of his people. And that, 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 that servant is anointed by the Spirit of God as well, Isaiah 42. Here is my servant, says God, whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. So here he is again now, in this third great section of Isaiah, anointed by the Spirit of God, the same person, the king, the servant, this anointed deliverer in Isaiah 61, Jesus. He, he can proclaim all of the things he is about to proclaim because he is uniquely equipped, not just as the Spirit-empowered one, but as the King of Isaiah 1-39, to as the servant of Isaiah 40-55. 40, 40 to, to, to he not only rules over all things, he's died for our sins so that we can be forgiven by God, so that we can be reconciled to God, so that we need not fear God's punishment. That is the basis on which he makes the promises to us he is about to make. Nothing can stop him. He's spirit empowered. He's the king. He's the servant. He's Jesus. So, second question. What will he do? What's he going to do then? This, this, this character who's been coming more and more and more into focus as Isaiah continues. Well, he makes seven statements about what he, well, what he will do and... Um, uh, in many ways, the first and the last ones are summarising statements and actually the central one is a particular, uh, 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 has a particular focus on it as well. You could, you could uh, um, uh, analyse the structure of the next three verses in that way to show uh, uh, a summary at beginning to end and uh, a central um, uh, proclamation as well to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. What will he do then? Well, let's think, uh, let's think about these statements. First of all, he will proclaim good news, says Isaiah. That is, he will proclaim the gospel. The gospel for the poor. That, as I said at the beginning, is everybody who recognises the dark side of our present reality. Us. He proclaims good news for us. And what is that good news? 
It is news of healing for broken hearts, to bind up the broken hearted, you see. It is news of liberty for captives, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners. It is good news of comfort for mourners, to comfort all who mourn. It is good news of provision for those who have suffered loss, to provide for those who grieve. It is good news of, of, of liberty, inheritance, rest and joy. The, the, the connotations of the central um, statement in that list, in fact, absorb everything that has gone, uh, that, that else that uh, Isaiah has said. He has taken the concept, the Old Testament concept of the Jubilee year when he speaks of proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The Jubilee year in um, the nation of Israel was a, um, a great period of celebration that happened once in a lifetime. When uh, the Jubilee year came around, the land, for instance, was redistributed evenly amongst the people so that those by their bad management or bad luck or whatever who'd lost their land, they regained it. They regained their inheritance. The Jubilee year was the year when all the slaves went free and everyone rejoiced. The Jubilee was the year was the year when everyone rested. They were promised God himself will provide enough crops that year for you just to enjoy a year of rest and celebration. This is what Jesus promises. He promises comfort, liberty, provision. He promises jubilee, celebration. And that finally, final summary statement at, uh, at the end adds, adds, uh, adds new light, new glory to what Jesus uh, promises. He promises grace. He promises to give, to bestow, as the NIV translates it. Promises free gift. An extraordinary free gift as well. A free gift of dignity, a crown of beauty instead of ashes. A free gift of joy, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. The free gift of hope, a garment of praise instead of despair. That is what Jesus offers. And when Jesus walked the earth, he began to do exactly those things. Now that he is risen and seated at the right hand of God, he continues to do those things. I don't know whether you noticed in Peter's reading right at the beginning, from the beginning of Acts, Luke again um, says in my former book, the Gospel of Luke, I told you all that Jesus began to say and do. The story of the church is what Jesus continues to do. And what he continues to do is exactly these things. In the hearts of millions of believers, he does that. Don't we need that?
Don't we need that in that in this in this difficult fallen world? Christian history, you know, is absolutely full of people who have experienced that. For instance, um, in 1956, a little group of uh, missionaries led by um, uh, Jim Elliot was uh, martyred by the South American tribe to whom they'd gone. The widow of one of the martyrs, a man called Roger Uderian, his widow Barbara wrote this in her diary the night she heard he had died. Tonight the captain told us of finding four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt and blue jeans. Rog was the only one who wore them. God gave this verse two days ago, Psalm 48 verse 14. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even unto death. As I came face to face with the news of Rog's death, my heart was filled with praise. Praise. She'd lost her husband. There's a miracle there. He has sent me to comfort those who mourn, to provide for those who grieve. garment of praise instead of despair. Or a couple of hundred years before that the hymn writer and poet William Cooper who suffered from terrible depression wrote this I was a stricken deer that left the herd long since with many an arrow infixed My panting side was charged when I withdrew to seek a tranquil death in distant shades. There was I found by one who had himself been hurt by the archers. In his side he bore, and in his hands and feet, cruel scars. With gentle force, Soliciting the darts, he drew them forth and healed and bade me live. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to bestow a garment of praise. Or I remember vividly. Um, Uh, meeting a young woman who'd been a high-flying city financier. She lost her job, she lost her home and all her friends abandoned her. But when I met her, she was radiant because through that terrible experience she found Jesus. He has sent me to bestow a crown of beauty instead of ashes. And I now have been at the bedside of a good number of elderly dying Christians 
and the sense of imprisonment in a, in a failing body becomes all-encompassing, you know, as we, as we approach death. But I have seen those believers growing in joy as they sense themselves about to pass out of their mortal prison into the glorious freedom and the presence of God. I remember one dear friend who was, when I last saw him, he was too weak to uh, speak to me, but after I'd uh, prayed with him and began to leave, he managed to move his hand from his side and to smile a bit and just to put his thumb up. He was okay. He has anointed me to proclaim freedom to the captives. If you are a Christian here, this is your story. This can be your story in glorious technicolour where now you might only see it in shades of grey. This can be your story that, that, that infuses your soul to the very depths of who you are and then flows out into every aspect of your life. This can be your story which, which wasn't complete when you first put your trust in Christ but actually became a story of, of, of a growing flowering and flourishing as each day and week and month and year and decade goes on until actually, though outwardly, as the Apostle Paul puts it, we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed daily because we know Jesus. The life of Jesus is working in us. The ministry of Jesus is transforming us. This is your story. This can be more gloriously your story. Let me be clear though. The fullness of what Christ offers is only in eternity. When um, Jesus' ministry had uh, started to get established, John the Baptist, his great advocate, got imprisoned and was facing death. Finding himself locked up in prison, finding himself actually disappointed by Jesus. He sent messengers to ask whether Jesus really was the great person of Isaiah 61 that he had hope, hoped. Let me read to you from Matthew 11. When, Jesus, uh, when John heard in prison that what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. 
Jesus is pointing out that his miracles are, are a fulfilment actually of various passages in Isaiah, but particularly of Isaiah 61. The good news is preached to the poor. It's happening, John, says Jesus. But there's something very significant that Jesus leaves out. Very significant for John. He doesn't say the prisoners are released. John the Baptist will not receive that freedom in his life. John the Baptist will remain imprisoned and finally executed. Jesus is saying to him, John, John, you've seen enough. You've seen enough of the things that I can do to be prepared to forego some of the things for eternity. One day you will be free. One day you will be enjoy the glorious liberty of resurrection life in the new heaven and the new earth. One day, John, you will. But you must expect, you must realise the fullness of that waits that day. And we too must realise that this is no proclamation or promise of some simple, instant, wonderful, perfect transformation. In fact, God does his work through Jesus in the midst of continuing, ongoing difficulty so that we both enjoy the first taste of what God is doing and we long with all our hearts for the final fullness. It's not by accident that Jesus said to John, blessed are those who do not fall away on account of me. He knew John was going to face disappointment as well as the beginnings of glory. He knew John had to endure and not fall away. We live in the days when we just had a handful of the harvest. One day God's going to give us a whole silo full of grain. When we just have a we just have a, a couple of flowers in our hand. One day we will wander in endless fields of glorious beauty. We live in the days when God's given us just a first kiss. One day we will just bathe in his love eternally. The ministry which he has begun that is described in Isaiah 61, he will complete but it will not be complete until we reach glory. What can he do? This great saviour, he can do so much, can't he? And then one last question. What is his purpose? What does he want to achieve beyond the those wonderful things he gives us. Look at the end of verse 3. 
They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour. Two things are ultimate to his purpose. The one is our complete restoration and rebuilding. In the, in the Middle East, you, you, you see great trees, a few of them, standing tall. They, they, they tower over the landscape. They provide shelter in the heat of the day. They stand firm in the fiercest storms. Their roots go down so deep that they are still green in the driest of droughts. They are absolutely immovable, these great Middle Eastern trees. That is what you will be like, says Isaiah, as Jesus ministers to you. You will be a planting of the Lord, and as a planting of the Lord, you will stand tall. That is Jesus' intention. That is where, uh, his final intention for us. Immovable. Always nourished, giving shade. And the second uh, purpose, which is closely related to the first, is that in doing so, you will display the glory of God. For, as he puts it, the display of his splendour. Like the Mona Lisa displays the skill of uh, Da Vinci or, or the mini car still, 40, 50 years later, displays the inventiveness of Alec Isigonis or, or, uh, or a great garden displays the eye for colour of the uh, garden designer. Our great purpose is to display the glory of God, to display his splendour. Our greatest fulfilment comes in doing that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, that is what you are missing out on. I urge you, seek Jesus. Seek him with all your heart. Read the Gospels about him. Pray to God to open your eyes. Seek Jesus. Because he is needed by every single human being who has ever existed, who has honestly opened their eyes to the reality of this world. And he offers to every single human being who has ever existed the possibility of healing and restoration and comfort and liberty if they seek him. Seek him. And if you are a Christian here this morning, then go on seeking him. You really, really want to continue just with, with a half experience of God, a tiny little taste of Jesus, just enough to keep me reasonably confident that I'm going to heaven. Do you want actually satisfy yourself on Jesus to experience more and more this ministry of Jesus that is described there seek him let seeking him being your, be your central desire your central focus your central purpose because 
What could be more glorious than being formed into a great tree and being in ourselves a display of the splendour of God? I need that Jesus. I am seeking that Jesus. I know for myself there is so much more. Let's seek him together. There is nothing else that will come remotely near to satisfying our deepest needs. But Jesus...